The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 3rd, 2017, the Kelly and the Mooch edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. The Denver gang is back together. John Dickerson is <laughs> off this week, but you know what that means? It means that Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post is here in his stead. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. I do uh, doing my Emily Bazelon imitation. <laughs> do I do that? You're right. No, I no. do like to repeat words for no reason. Uh, and the- <laughs> And then Emily Bazelon joins us from um, from an undisclosed location in New England, not her usual New Haven haunt. Um, I'm in Maine. She's in hiding in Maine, um, fleeing, as we'll discuss, from from prosecutors in Tennessee who are seeking her extradition to Tennessee. Uh, on that's not true. Don't worry about that, <laughs> listeners. She's, Emily is under no threat of indictment. Uh, there's not no, yet. no bounty hunters. Yeah. No bounty hunters after her, as far as I know. On this week's Gabfest, uh, chaos in the Trump White House. What else is new? Priebus out, Mooch in and out, General Kelly leaping over fences from Homeland Security to try to save the presidency as the new chief of staff. Plus, uh, Don Jr., of course, um, getting good advice from his dad. Then, is the Jeff Sessions Justice Department preparing to bring lawsuits to vindicate the rights of white college students being discriminated against? in their applications. And then Emily's fascinating story of prosecutorial misbehavior in Tennessee. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. So, amazingly, we don't have to talk about Obamacare this week, Ruth. Well, it wouldn't matter because it would change, you know, like by the minute. While we were actually taping. Um, So, uh, this week, the White House looks like the stage at the end of a Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, there are dead bodies strewn <laughs> everywhere. A general striding in from from beyond the uh, beyond the the stage right to bring order where there is now merely blood. So uh, General Kelly has arrived from the Department of Homeland Security to get the Trump White House under control. A White House that underwent a spasm of the sort I don't even remember ever happening. In short order, of course, we had Sean Spicer gone. The mooch in, the mooch purging the communication staff, the mooch knifing Reince Priebus and the New Yorker, Priebus out, Kelly in to replace Priebus, mooch himself executed before he even started, not to mention all sorts of other chaos. And and notably, um, notably, I guess, for the sake of this discussion, the incredible story in the, your hometown paper, The Washington Post, Ruth's paper, The Washington Post, that Trump Sr. actually dictated the di- very dishonest statement about Trump Jr.'s Russia meeting while he was on Air Force One. So, as, as any father would do. As any father would do, exactly. Any father. Ruth, what is the case for and against the argument that Kelly can bring order to a White House where there is now only Trump? Okay. Um, so first of all, I'm really wishing I either was better at Hamlet and so could call up some fantastic peroration at the end or could have Googled it fast mm. enough. So sorry, should have, mm. you know, paid more attention in that Shakespeare course. I think it's Fortinbras who comes in. Yeah. Someone strides in. I think it's Fortinbras. Well, you're also well educated and Google fast. Okay. So the case for General Kelly saves the day is this. A, it can't get any worse. B, General Kelly is a general. We all know Trump likes generals. And he kind of likes, I mean, literally somebody who's a very seasoned former high-ranking official in a previous Republican White House said this to me as a serious argument. And I'm actually taking it as a serious argument. Kelly is big, physically big. I was confused when he first started saying this to me. But he was like, one thing in Kelly's behalf is he's large. He's big. Trump likes big people. Priebus was this kind of smaller person. I say this as a smaller person. So he's the kind of person that Trump can respect. Another argument on Kelly's behalf is how much more even Trump has to stop and think, okay, how much more of this circular firing squad can we engage in? So Kelly threat to resign or Kelly failing really could give even a Trump pause. Kelly understands military organization and 
hierarchy and understands how to lead and impose discipline. So I think that's probably the totality of the Kelly can do it argument. The argument that no one can do it and therefore Kelly can't is probably boils down to one word. Um, you, I know you're all guessing that word. It's Trump. You can impose some discipline on a staff, and I will predict, we've already started to see it, a spate of stories over a week or two where we will see all the evidence, air quotes, of um, the new improved White House under Kelly, and it probably will be improved. But as even if Trump wanted to change the thing that he told us during the campaign and continues to tell us that he could be as presidential as anyone with the possible exception of the late great uh, Abe Lincoln just has turned out not to be true. Trump not only does not want to be managed, he affirmatively rebels against being controlled as he sees it. And so in the end, he's not going to stop tweeting. He is not going to stop soliciting advice from everybody, which is a kind of presidential norm, but he's not going to stop sort of encouraging the chaos around him. The children are not going to magically disappear. We saw Ivanka's um, statement this week that she looked forward to working alongside General Kelly. That was probably not an accident. And so can it be improved? Yes. Can it be fundamentally overhauled to look like a normal White House? Probably not. So, Emily, do you agree with Ruth's assessment of that? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I also think, what does Kelly really need to do? Is Does the president really want the kind of soap opera, house of cards, distractions that he's providing to go away? Because sometimes it seems like they're useful to him. Um, you know, Kelly's not someone who has a whole lot of legislative experience. So whatever happens with, next with Congress is probably not something that he's going to be leading the charge on. Now, on the other hand, I imagine the Republicans in Congress might say, well, if you could just, like, make your White House less embarrassing, we would have an easier time proceeding. Like, if you could just stop taunting us and yelling at us over Twitter, that would be super nice. But then, you know, also let's not forget that a lot of the executive agencies are getting things done in the Trump administration. The Justice Department, the Department of Education, the EPA, and there will be a new head of the Department of Homeland Security. These places are making change. And so that's sort of going on beneath the surface, no matter how distracting the White House is or stops being. I, I think that um, Emily makes a really good point about General Kelly's relative lack of experience in the legislative realm. There are probably two things that are going to be at the front and center of issues for the Trump White House. The first is the essential absence of legislative victory, if you sort of think of the confirmation of Justice Gorsuch as something that was a pre-existing condition engineered by Mitch McConnell. Um, the big legislative moment of the Trump White House has been the Russia sanctions bill that he signed this week um, under duress, under the duress of having a veto override. Um, so General Kelly isn't going to be the sort of legislative um, strategist a la a Leon Panetta or others who chiefs of staff who've come from the uh, Rahm Emanuel from the congressional moment from the congressional sphere, um, nor is he going to be somebody who understands what it's like to lead a White House through a special counsel investigation. He doesn't come from the realm of law. He doesn't really um, have experience in managing a Washington, a quintessentially Washington crisis. So those are going to be um, getting some legislation um, uh, notched in the belt and trying to figure out how to steer this White House through a special counsel investigation, two things that he may not be, um, he, may, he may turn out to do great at, but he doesn't have a lot of experience in. The Did you, did you guys see that extraordinary uh, little aperçu in some, I don't even know where it came from, that Kelly and Mattis had made a pact, allegedly made a pact when they both joined the administration that they would never both be out of the country at the same time in order to, I presume, protect the military or protect the nation from terrible Trump orders, which is astonishing. That That is consistent with um, things that I've heard and with my sense that um, there is an understanding 
that the country, and, and this sort of goes to the patriots should rally to the defense of their country. And the other, actually, I keep going back to the mooch because he lasted so such a short time but gave us so much. His quote, there are people in the White House who believe their job is to protect the country from Trump. I'm not quoting it exactly, but wow, let's hope that's true. And I think there are people in the administration who see themselves that way. They are protecting the country, um, let's hope, Mattis, Kelly, others from this mercurial president. They want to be able to kind of race to the White House, get to the sit room, sit in the chair and say, no, Mr. President, very bad idea. Let's also, though, remember that Kelly is a figure who, on immigration issues, is very much to the right in league with the Trump base. Um, and we're taping Thursday morning when Trump has just made this announcement um, about slashing legal immigration to the United States by half within the next decade. So this is a proposal of Jeff Sessions, of other people like Steve Bannon, who have argued from the beginning that the United States doesn't just have a problem with illegal immigration. It also has too many people coming in legally from other countries. And Kelly's been very much in line with this idea of enforcement. He gave a speech about how the country was constantly under attack as a result of undocumented people. Like, So I don't just feel like, yes, there is patriotism going on here, but it also comes with a set of um, ideological ideas and policy proposals. Yeah. I, I, I Just as a, an aside... That immigration proposal is, to me, the first manifestly unstupid thing that the administration has done. I think it's totally wrong, but as politics and it's it seems actually like something that they're going to get a decent amount of support for. It puts the Democrats in a position they don't necessarily want to be in. It does play to their voters. Uh, I mean, it's bad. It's like a bad idea, but but I don't I don't think they are going to regret it the way they regret everything else that they're pursuing. Well, we'll see. They might regret that, Stephen Miller. Yes, but the poem was not put on the Statue of Liberty until afterwards moment. But we'll take your point. Tell us more about that. That was at a press conference yesterday. So at the White House briefing yesterday, there was this magnificent interchange between Stephen Miller. You know, in, in the Trump show, the cast of characters, the minor characters that you thought went away, they're always brought back in later episodes of the show. So we... Got once again, having been deprived of the mooch, um, another glimpse of Stephen Miller, who came to brief the press corps about the benefits, uh, the manifest, obvious, astounding benefits of this immigration plan. And when Jim Acosta of CNN challenged him about the the mess, you know, the the American experience of immigration and the message on the Statue of Liberty from Emma Lazarus, give us your t- poor, your tired, your masses, blah, blah. I'm not blah, blahing it. It's beautiful um, and inspiring. Miller's response was, yes, that was added later. Um, you know, it kind of, well, the Bill of Rights was added later too, but we kind of take it seriously. And by the way, because I did have time to Google that one, Emma Lazarus wrote the new Colossus as part of a fundraising effort to generate the money for the pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty would be placed. So kind of the concept was present from the start. Um, Let's, uh, before we close this topic, let's briefly move to the interesting other Washington Post uh, scoop of the week, which was that turns out that the dishonest, mendacious lie of a statement that the White House first issued about Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with Russians who were peddling damaging information about Hillary Clinton, that President Trump wrote that statement himself, dictated it, apparently, from Air Force One. Why Why is that important, Ruth? Why does that matter? Um, well, it matters for a number of reasons. First, um, we had glimmerings of this before, but the president's lawyer, uh, at least lawyer on TV, Jay Sekulow, had assured us, and so we all should have gone away and um, not worried our little heads about it, that the president had not been involved in drafting this statement that it had come from Don Jr. So another moment, surprise of lack of um, truth. Uh, so the argument from the White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, was that the president was involved, was giving um, Don Jr., advice, quote, as any father would, 
I would say this was not father knows best. This was kind of father Stonewall's best. Um, the president's instinct is always if there is, you know, everybody in Washington understands that what you need to do when you're facing a crisis is, and you've got bad facts is you get them all out at once. You don't dribble them out. Trump's instinct is exactly the opposite. You only admit to what you absolutely have to admit to if that. And so he is once again involved in making sure that facts do not get out appropriately and pretty much hurting himself. But the real way in which this matters is that it implicates the president in yet another way in an effort to keep from A, the American people, but B, and potentially more significantly, the special counsel who keeps coming up here, the true story of Trump campaign and Trump officialdom's involvement with Russians during the course of the campaign or before or after. Emily, is there anything point you want to make about that? Well said. Well said. That's my great point. Okay, before we move on, uh, we've got a great Slate Plus segment for you today. The Seth Rich saga has a new and bizarre twist, a lawsuit alleging White House involvement in the scheme to paint a DNC staffer's killing as a political murder orchestrated by Democrats and that scheme in order to distract from the Russia investigation sort of involving Fox and Spicer and all sorts of other shady characters. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member and want to hear that kind of conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join. And also, our beloved and fantastic researcher Kevin Townsend is leaving us. And so we need a new researcher. It's also Kevin's birthday today. What better birthday present for Kevin than to apply to become our researcher and succeed him? It's a 15 to 20 hour a week job in Washington, D.C. It's pretty decently paid. It's mostly on Wednesday and Thursday. It's a job where you do research, you do some social media, you decide on topics. It has been a great stepping stone to full-time journalism and full-time policy work for Kevin and his predecessors. So let me urge you to apply at gabfest at slate.com. Send us your resume and a cover letter to gabfest at slate.com. This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. What better way to win back a president's heart than to bring lawsuits on behalf of poor white college students terribly victimized by affirmative action policies at our liberal universities. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had such a troublesome week last week as a potential presidential ritual animal sacrifice, has come back full of uh, piss and vinegar. His Justice Department delightedly told a court this week that civil rights laws do not protect against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And then his Department of Justice is dropping hints that it's about to start a campaign of lawsuits against colleges for racial discrimination against potentially white students, potentially Asian American students. Uh, who knows? He is certainly very busy, Emily, isn't he? <laughs> he is certainly very busy. Right. You know, 
This idea of suing on behalf of white students is a dearly held priority from the 80s um, of conservatives who think that the best way to implement the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution is to have a kind of race-neutral idea in the law and, uh, you know, and I think to give them their due, a race-neutral society. So they see racial preferences in university admissions as fundamentally unfair because it's putting any kind of, you know, thumb on the scale for people based on the color of their skin or their nationality. And so what we're seeing here in some ways is wholly unsurprising. Um, the Reagan administration took these kinds of positions. The George W. Bush administration was in favor of these positions. And there are already lawsuits going on against Harvard and the University of North Carolina and UT Austin brought by a conservative named Edward Bloom on behalf of white and Asian students. So, you know, we're talking about like a very polarizing set of issues about how we divvy up what are seen as these inc increasingly scarce and precious spots in selective colleges and universities in the United States. And it's not at all surprising to me that the Sessions Justice Department would want to be taking this kind of stand. Can they only go after public universities or they, they can go after any university because if they're discriminating, they're discriminating, if they're violating the law, civil rights law. Yeah, they can the try to take a position in a suit involving any university that receives federal funding, right? That would be the tie. And basically every, you know, major and like almost every school has some kind of federal money. Wait, but you, if, if I'm a school that doesn't get any federal money, I am allowed to discriminate against African Americans or white well, Americans? I mean, maybe not. Like we, right now, it, and it depends what you mean by discriminate, right? You could imagine a Supreme Court ruling in which every single school in the country was not allowed to take race into account in any way in admissions. I'm just saying that from the point of view of the federal government and the Justice Department, the tie is federal funding. So, Ruth, is there any evidence that there's unfair discrimination occurring against white students? Well, Asian American students, let's set aside for the minute, but against white students, is there evidence that this is, in fact, a real issue. Um, white student athletes or white student um, children of alumni, or I think you're deducing that I'm a little bit skeptical. But I want to say I agree with what Emily said. What, one thing that I think it's really important to do as we think about the various uh, moments that horrify many of us in the Trump administration is to try to distinguish between what a quote, normal Republican administration would do and what the Trump administration is doing. And to me, this one falls more on the side of what a normal right. Republican administration right. would do, whether or not you agree with it. And in fact, the thing that's so surprising uh, to some extent about this is that the person who at the top of this administration actually during the campaign said he had really no problem with affirmative action, that he didn't want to disturb it. He sounded very Justice O'Connor-like in saying that he thought it would be better if we could kind of get past this moment, that in reality we shouldn't disturb the status quo, which is not to give, not to set explicit quotas, but to take into account the importance of diversity. You said set aside the Asian thing, but I think that that's the wrong question, if I may. Um, no, I'm not saying to really, set aside. I was but, just saying for the no, purpose but, of that, an, like, right. that person and I was, answer. I was, I was going to continue a, to it. I was not doing a good job of answering that question. Look, is it, you know, all else equal? Is it easier um, with a certain set of SATs and a certain grade point average to get into a really selective university um, if you are a person of color than if you are a white person? Yeah, probably. But it's also easier to get in, as I said, if you're a great athlete or if you're an alumni kid or, if, you know, just to take a random and completely hypothetical example, if your father has given $2.5 million to, say, Harvard. Would you be speaking of Jared Kushner, Ruth Marcus? I might. I might. Just just you know, saying. another thing to point out in this debate, since we're opening up this issue, is there is a very legitimate conversation to be had about whether schools favor upper income students and applicants generally much and, and, and really don't do enough outreach, don't do enough to bring in low income kids, including kids of color. And a really 
pretty rich debate in the academic literature about whether you could design a socioeconomic measure for colleges and universities that would not you know, in a significant way, reduce minority enrollment. Because, of course, the the usual problem with just going with a straight, you know, income-based measure is there are lots and lots of poor white people in the country, and their numbers swamp the number of poor minority applicants. So you have to have a more sophisticated measure that takes in things like wealth and zip code that really capture the kind of disadvantage that African Americans and Hispanics face in the country. So that's all like really interesting conversation. And there are states that have banned racial preferences and a couple states, um, I'm pretty sure this is true about Georgia, that have also banned legacy preferences along with that. So, you know, we can ask whether race-based preferences are still the best way to go, but the chances that the Sessions Justice Department and that these lawsuits um, that are brought on behalf of these, you know, supposedly screwed over white and Asian applicants, like that, I it does not seem necessarily like the best forum for um, really thinking through these issues in a nuanced way. Don't you think when it comes to Asian American applicants that this is a really interesting and tough and much stronger case. I mean, I I find it as a Jew, and I've read a lot about the Jewish quotas in the Ivy League in the, I think, 20s. I think actually it's up through like the 50s. There were strong Jewish quotas because the, the fear of the Ivy Leagues was, well, if we let if we if we don't quota this, our universities are going to be swamped by Jews. It's going to change the overrun, cult- I think culture. Yes. Overrun by Jews. And uh, it's going to change the kind of fundamental nature of the university. It's the way the way it works. It's going to you know undermine the institutions of it. It will uh, weaken alumni ties. And the exactly the same arguments basically are being made about Asian students today. And I find that extremely really. You see those arguments if, being made. Where are people saying like that yes. Asian Americans are bad for schools? I thought it was much more that as a model minority, they are performing so well. No. If you look at Harvard or the Ivy Leagues or the, Stanford, the, the percentage of Asian students is far below what you would anticipate given the applicant Absolutely. pool. But that doesn't given mean how, that Harvard and Stanford, et cetera, are saying we don't want more Asian Americans because they're going to change the nature of the school. Yes, it does. No, that's exactly what that's they're saying. That's what, that's what they're. That's how they're I, acting. I think it's they are absolutely. Like, that's exactly what they're doing. They're implicitly acting. They're 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 saying they're they're basically saying like that the Asian students. If we let it, we, no, it is not that's, what, that's they're, what saying. they're saying, Emily. I don't know how you're saying I, that. I don't know how you're. I don't. I don't think it's imbued with the same sort of um, yicky. Um, we don't really want to be hanging out well, with, with them. That that of of that characterize the Jewish quotas of your. But I think there is a concern among schools that if they are barred from taking um, ethnicity into account, that Asian students, because they perform extraordinarily well, they are going to occupy a lot of spaces. And they are going to, by that very nature, interfere with the diversity. You could completely understand how the Asians of today feel exactly like the Jews of yesteryear did Confronting that, and by the way, just as a sort of data point, late yesterday, the Justice Department, put, which had refused to engage on this topic and to confirm that it was looking at this, put out a statement that said that the um, people it was trying to recruit for this effort were looking specifically at an administrative complaint that was filed by Asian students against Harvard University. So it was in this in this specific context, which is a very to me, um, somewhat empathetic context. If I were an Asian parent of a overachieving Asian student, I might feel some resentment. I definitely would. Well, wait it, but, a second. But, okay, so first of all, Asian American groups have come in on the side of affirmative action, on the side of the African American and Hispanic folks who are considered the underrepresented minorities in all of these cases. They are not just complaining. And when they are complaining, they're complaining from a similar vantage point as white students. They might, they one, they might seem more sympathetic because they're also a minority group, but the notion that like 
this is really about, you know, pitting Asian Americans against African Americans and Hispanics, I would just really caution against going in that direction. That's exactly what white people who oppose affirmative action want to turn this argument into. I don't think it's about pitting Asian Americans against African Americans and Hispanics. I think it's about pitting Asian Americans against white no, people. No, that's not true. White Americans. white students I do, are not getting I, a race-based preference either. And so the way these suits are set up, you find an Asian plaintiff to complain about the same kind of race-based preference that is also, you know, supposedly limiting the opportunities of white students. But I guess what I'm saying is that the impact, well, yes, I'm, the, Im- I'm there is impact the impact, the impact on Asian students is enormous at the very best universities. And it's an enormous in a way that is, to me, is, is in the language or the implication in the kind of elite admissions is, well, these Asian students maybe don't have, if we, when we take into account the variety of activity and, and how they present themselves and the different things they're going to bring. The, these Asian students, obviously, they bring great things, but we're going to let in these other students who are, are weaker. They're weaker academically. They're weaker in, in extracurriculars. But we just they're basically just saying we need to bring in these weaker people because we can't have these academically excellent students dominating this university. All right. I am, again, going to take issue with weaker, which I don't think is true or right. I think that these schools are looking at other kinds of credentials. And I happen to have this one stat on my mind because I just read it the other day, and it's slightly separate from this Asian-American conversation we're having, but I'm going to put it out there. But this is exactly the other credentials is exactly what they used to say about Jewish students in the 20s and 30s. That's what they said. They said the Jewish students are grinds. Yeah, I don't. They said that. Listen, that's what it was. A second from like this, like uh, relatively narrow question of the model minority and how it fares to, you know, think about equity in the country. So average wealth in this country for white people is about $111,000. Average wealth for African Americans is $7,000. And for Hispanics, it's $8,000. I'm not sure what the stat is for Asian Americans, but I guarantee it is closer to white people than it is to African Americans or Hispanics. We're talking about an enormous legacy of racism in this country that has played out differently for different groups. And because of that, schools feel a different sense of obligation to underrepresented minorities. Now, the Supreme Court, if you ask me, screwed this up years ago by allowing for diversity as the only legally legitimate rationale for affirmative action. So we don't get to talk anymore in legal terms about, you know, making up for the past. But that is what we still should be doing. That is separate from whether affirmative action policies in colleges do that enough because they may, I I think they don't do enough to reach out to low-income kids. That is like a completely legitimate critique to level. But, you know, the notion, again, like you are buying into this idea that this is pitting Asian Americans against other minority groups. And I just like... Uh, deeply want to say, I don't think that is a, a fair way to think about this or one that, that you know, Asian Americans by any means universally embrace, though we should really not be speaking for them. Emily, it is outrageous how disadvantaged African Americans and Latinos are in this process. It's outrageous and it's really unfair and universities at every level ought to do much better and they ought to do much better with poor people generally. I'm not, that is not what I'm saying. I'm just, I just, I, if I were a, an Asian American student trying to apply to certain elite universities, I would be pissed off. Anyway, Ruth, go uh, ahead. So Emily said the magic word Supreme Court. And so I, I want to ask a question that might seem like a detour, but I think could be interesting, uh, which is, so whether or not it makes sense for the Trump administration to stir up the hornet's nest of affirmative action, whether this is a base play. And by the way, uh, my colleague Chuck Lane has a really interesting op-ed today that suggests that this is not, um, uh, compared to other things, actually a particularly good motivating issue for the base. They don't care that much, but let's assume that they do. I'm wondering about the impact of the hornet's nest on the Supreme Court and potentially the impact on the one justice who we're always watching, Justice Kennedy. And I'm wondering, Emily, if you think Justice Kennedy watching this turmoil, having uh, surprised all of us by giving his um, vote on the side of continuing what we have left of affirmative action programs, uh, whether this might be not smart of the Trump administration to stir up the hornet's nest just because it's another way in which Justice Kennedy, looking at social turmoil, might think, eh, eh, maybe I'll stick around for a while longer. 
Right, that's really interesting. I mean, I think of this play, legally speaking, as a post-Justice Kennedy play. (laughs) (laughs) That this is for the time in which the, you know... Trump administration gets to replace Justice Kennedy or one of the um, democratically appointed justices, by which I mean appointed by a democratic president. Um, and that it's looking past him because, as you say, a couple of years ago, he surprisingly wrote the opinion that allowed affirmative action to continue at the University of Texas, Austin. Now, we could also argue that that is a very narrow opinion. It was like an incredibly specific set of facts to UT Austin and to Texas. But I think you're right that one, there are some reasons to think that Justice Kennedy is not super fond of aggressive moves in a right-wing direction and that this administration in a number of ways might be making him nervous. On the other hand, reading the Justice Kennedy tea leaves is, uh, you know, kind of (laughs) an exercise in conjecture, right? Uh, So one quick last thing before we uh, end this topic. Ruth, one of the other things that the Sessions Justice Department did this week is is to argue in, uh, I can't even remember what the case is, but that Title VII essentially doesn't apply for discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. It's essentially saying that the laws which say you can't discriminate on the basis of sex do not then protect people who are discriminated against because of their sexual orientation. Who is ultimately going to decide this? And is it a big deal that the Sessions Justice Department made this argument? So um, everybody, I'm going to get myself in trouble with the GabFest audience, I think. Go to, for it. By saying that this is not um, among the outrages of the Sessions Justice Department, and there are many. And here's why. For years, we were told that it was really important for Congress to pass the Employment Non-Discrimination Act because existing laws, including Title VII, did not protect people on the basis of their sexual orientation. And it was – I wrote column after column – Arguing that this was a complete, it was a complete outrage not to have these protections and that therefore Congress should pass ENDA and protect people. And the reason, by the way, that Congress didn't protect, pass ENDA was that it was wrapped up with the issue of transgender protections. Flip ahead and we now have this legally weird situation in which the Justice Department has said that it understands Title VII's protection of against discrimination on the basis of gender to include discrimination against transgender people because that is discrimination on the basis of gender. But even the Obama Justice Department has, did not go so far as to say that Title VII also included uh, protections against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. If your head is spinning right now, it should be, because that leads to the sort of odd legal result that there are greater potential legal protections for transgender Americans than there are for gay and lesbian Americans, probably not what Congress had in mind when it passed Title Seven, But the EEOC had said Title Seven protects gays and lesbians against discrimination on the job. The Obama Justice Department, as far as I understand, did not get there. It didn't say the other way either. So it's a really complicated legal question. It would be much better if we had this spelled out legislatively. The fact that the Sessions Justice Department came out the other way from the Obama EEOC, or actually the current EEOC probably, um, might be disappointing to you, but I'm sorry, Gab Festers, it's not legally outrageous. Wait, I'm going to um, just throw in a couple of points here. So when you were writing all those columns about ENDA, the um, the federal law or the federal bill. Proposed. Right? That was before federal courts around the country started extending the existing federal statute that we're talking about, Title VII, um, and making the claim that sex discrimination also covered gay and lesbian people. So that's just one point of reference. The other thing is that this is a lawsuit in which the Justice Department is not a party, and they could have stayed out of it and let the EOC position stand for the government, and they didn't. So, you know, you might still think it's not legally outrageous. I think that you're totally right that it would be better for Congress to be the body that extends these protections than to have it happen through 
the courts extending an old law, Title VII, but it is a, a slightly different um, situation than when we were in a few years ago before we had these court rulings in a case sure. in which the Justice Department could have stayed out of it. In, including court, you left out court rulings on protections and constitutional um, potential protections uh, against um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. But I'd also say, and you, your points are good, that we saw a lot of times when the Obama Justice Department intervened in private cases to express its view. So we didn't get all riled up then because we tended to agree with the position totally that they were taking. Totally so fair. just saying, we're also fair. Yes, good point. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a superb story in the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, headlined, she was convicted of killing her mother. Prosecutors withheld the evidence that would have freed her. Our own Emily Bazelon tells the story of Nora Jackson, a woman convicted of killing her mother a dozen years ago and who has been in Emily's telling a victim of prosecutorial misbehavior and prosecutorial misbehavior which has implications for other cases and for how we think about how prosecutors should should uh, collect and share evidence about what they're doing. So Emily give us a precis about what happened to Nora Jackson. Nora Jackson's mother was brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night um, in September 2005. And it was the kind of murder that really freaks out middle class folks. This was in Memphis in like a quiet residential, mostly white neighborhood. And there weren't any obvious suspects there um, for a little while, for a couple months, no one was arrested for this crime. Um, and then the police and the prosecutors decided um, their suspicion settled on Nora Jackson. So she was 18 at the time. She'd been raised by her mother. She was an only child. And they, there was what the prosecutors and police called circumstantial evidence that made them suspect her. There was also a lot of blood and other evidence at the crime scene to test. And they sent that um, evidence away for testing in the state crime lab and charged Nora before it came back. When the evidence came back, um, there were DNA results, and they identified um, a couple of complete profiles, um, and they excluded Nora. In other words, nothing um, tied her in terms of physical evidence or the DNA to the crime scene. But the case against her proceeded anyway. She was convicted by a jury. There's lots more details about this in my story. I don't want to go on forever about it. But um, in 2014, nine years later, after she'd been in prison for nine years, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned Nora's conviction. And this is really unusual. I actually went and did some legal research on this to just look and see how often does the Tennessee Supreme Court reverse a murder conviction. And I found there was only one case previously in which the court had reversed a conviction for a failure to disclose evidence. And that was what happened here. And the reason was that there was one key witness, a guy named Andrew Hammack, who put Nora at the scene of the crime in the key hours when she was unaccounted for and when her mother was killed. And it turned out that that witness had given the police a handwritten statement saying that he was rolling on ecstasy um, at the night of the murder, and also that he had given his phone to a friend, which mattered because the idea was that Nora had called him on his phone, and that was when she asked him to meet her at her house, which was the scene of the crime. So if he didn't have his phone with him, then that story falls apart. The defense, the judge, the jury, they never heard about this note. The prosecutors um, came forward with it after the verdict. And so on that basis, and then another instance of the prosecutors breaking the rules in their closing statement to the jury, the Tennessee Supreme Court did reverse Nora's conviction in 2014. And so there's more to what happened to Nora. Um, and I should say that, you know, the prosecutor in uh, Memphis, Amy Wyrick, who tried this case and is now the elected DA, 
thinks that absolutely Nora is guilty. Nora um, did take what's called an Alford plea, which is a plea to a crime when you maintain your innocence, but you admit that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict you. And so because of that plea bargain and the previous conviction, the prosecutors still say that they are absolutely sure Nora is guilty, and they dismiss the, you know, errors in this case as kind of honest mistakes um, as opposed to anything that was deliberate. But what interested me about this case and about Memphis is that this district attorney's office has a history of what are called Brady violations, these failures to disclose evidence, and a kind of pattern um, of other kinds of improper statements to the jury as well. And so I was interested in the organizational culture of an office like that. I mean, most prosecutors take the obligation to turn over evidence and abide by all the rules in court extremely seriously. It's part of their ethics as well as their, as well as law. Um, and so I was just curious, like, what was going on in this office that there were these kinds of repeated violations happening? And, and what does that tell us about how the criminal justice system operates and how we could make it better? So that's sort of what the story is about. Before we get to some of the substance, can I just observe that, man, the idea that there's all this blood evidence, which I'm not you know, doesn't implicate me and I still get convicted of the murder. Like, is that just terrible defense lawyer work? I I would be, (laughs) if that were me, I would be, I would be pretty surprised and bummed. I mean, that seems like that's a, that you ought to be able to get off if you're, there's no blood from you there. Right. Well, I mean, part of what happened at Nora's trial was the trial judge made a decision that the Tennessee Supreme Court later questioned to admit a lot of evidence about how she was, like, smoking pot and using the opioid Lortab. She actually had a prescription for it. But a lot of, um, like, former friends of hers and, and her, I should also say her aunts and her half-uncle testifying that she was, like, a screwed-up teenager who was, like, messing around, wasn't going to school, clashing with her mother. And um, the defense didn't put on any witnesses, so there was no countering of that kind of portrait of Nora that was drawn at the trial. And then also there was circumstantial evidence that the prosecution was able to bring in. Um, there was a cut on Nora's hand. She had gone to buy bandages of it the night of the murder. She hadn't told the police about this. Um, and the prosecution's theory, I should also add, was that she killed her mother for money um, so that she could continue her kind of partying lifestyle. And her half-uncle and a neighbor testified that she'd been demanding money from her mother. So, you know, there was this sort of suggestive set of facts that the jury obviously gave weight to. Um, I'm going to just say one more thing about the facts of this case, because I find it to be just part of the whole mystery of what happened, which is that Nora's father, who was divorced from her mother, was actually murdered about 14 or 15 months before her mother was killed. He was this guy who owned a convenience store next to a strip club. Um, He was running a limo service. And the person who killed him, it's on videotape, ransacked his place as if they were looking for something. And there were all these rumors, like what he might have been looking for, this assailant. Um, And Nora's home was also ransacked when her mother was killed. And she was her father's heir and had a couple of his cars and some of his other possessions. So that's like another sort of thread in the story if you're interested in the like whodunit aspect of it. Is your view that this case is a kind of very small example of a problem which doesn't affect that many people or in fact that it's that it is something that is really worrisome that there's prosecutorial kind of hiding and deceit that is pervasive throughout the American legal system? I think we just have no idea how often evidence isn't disclosed because the thing about something being hidden is that usually, you know, you have no way of knowing it comes, whether it comes to light. Um, There definitely are other instances, plenty of instances in which we find out after the fact the prosecutors didn't disclose evidence. Sometimes it is an honest mistake, and sometimes they never get the evidence from the police to begin with. So I don't mean to suggest that this is always or even mostly a matter of deceit, but What strikes me as the most kind of the biggest point to make about the way the rules are set up is that it's all an honor system. So the Supreme Court in 1963, in this case called Brady versus Maryland, said that the state before trial has to turn over any evidence it has that is favorable to the defense and material to guilt or innocence. That standard of materiality, what 
is material, what matters is a pretty subjective one. So prosecutors get to make that call and they make it without judges or defense lawyers knowing what they're withholding as opposed to what they're turning over. Um, the analogy I used in the story was that it's like asking professional tennis players to call their own lines when the opponent can't see the other side of the court. In other words, the defense and the judges are just blind to what the prosecution has. And I think that's kind of nuts to have an honor system that is um, determining such an important part of fairness in the justice system. And, you know, prosecutors are like, there's a tension in their role. They have an obligation to win convictions as well as to be ministers of justice. And sometimes if you turn over a piece of exonerating evidence to the defense, you lower your own chances of winning. So I just don't think it makes a lot of sense for them to be making this judgment call in the way that Brady set up. And so one of the things I covered in the story was a number of states and some district attorneys have set up what are called open file policies, where instead of prosecutors making these sometimes tricky judgment calls, they just open up their files to the defense and the defense gets to decide what's useful to their case. Could you talk about not just Brady, but the broader questions that you think your story raises? She was... um held without bond, kept in jail for really quite a long amount of time, even before she was convicted. David alluded to the questions about um, whether she really did not have adequate representation, because I sort of suspect that if any of the three of us um, had been accused of such a crime, we would have found better lawyers and been unlikely to be convicted. Maybe I'm not being fair to her lawyer. And then, you know, this. she made the decision not to take the stand, and then the prosecutor made these outrageous comments about basically questioning her a decision to invoke her Fifth Amendment right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it does raise other issues. So to start with your last point, the prosecutor, Amy Weirich, um, who's now the elected DA, in her closing statement said to the jury, just or said to Nora in front of the jury, just tell us where you were. That's all we're asking, Nora. And Nora hadn't testified, you have a right, you know, to remain silent at trial. And so the other reason that the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed Nora's convictions was they said that this statement essentially undermined the right to remain silent because it, um, Amy Weirich was asking the jury to basically question why Nora hadn't testified. The trial judge in this case, um, you're right, it took a very long time for him to set bond. Then it was $500,000, which Nora couldn't afford. So she was in um, in jail for more than three years before her trial. I mean, I should... For all- no reason, right? For I mean, why would she need to be in jail? Well, she was accused of murdering her mother. So, you know, whether she would ever have gotten out on bond, especially in a pretty conservative state like Tennessee... You know, I think, like, (laughs) if you are accused of murder, um, it can be very hard to make bail generally. But you and I would have gotten out on bond because our families would have had the—our remaining families, I guess, would have had the resources to get us out. Probably. this is crazy. Or maybe the judge would have set such high bond for us that it would have been out of our reach, too. I mean, look, if you ask me the way we use bail and bond in this country, you know, the way we use money to keep people behind bars, before it's been proven they've done something wrong is really problematic. And I would much rather have a system where we consider whether people are a danger to the community or are a risk of flight rather than making this about how much money they can pay. And there was, a, and actually, Ruth, you even left out one other one, which is that so at the end where Nora Jackson ends up taking a plea just to get out of prison, but they've miscalculated how long she's supposed to be in prison, so she has to serve extra time, which was extraordinary. Yeah. Also. That is another uh, crazy part of this story. Nora's trial lawyer did bring her successful appeal in front of the Tennessee Supreme Court, and I also think it's easy in retrospect to um, question defense attorney tactics, harder to know in the moment what the right thing to do is at trial. You know, I also want to make sure to say that I did talk to Amy Weirich um, for this story, and she defends her office. She says that the things that have gone wrong are just honest mistakes. But what has struck me in my conversation with her and then also um, listening to her respond to my piece, because she gave a TV interview, I think, last night, is the sort of unwillingness to be introspective at all. It's, you know, and I guess, like, why is that a surprise? But she's a public official, you know, and she left in place this top supervisor um, 
who was like supervising her trial attorneys. This is a few years ago. This guy's now retired. But she, there was this top supervisor in her office who was one of the people who helped her rise. And he also had a major uh, Brady violation on his record in which the trial judge found that he purposefully misled the defense. And that is like, you don't see that usually to find that kind of purposeful language from a judge. And so when you leave in place someone like that with that kind of record and judicial finding and you don't conduct your own internal investigation in your office, you're sending a signal to other prosecutors who work for you that this isn't something that, you know, people are going to get in trouble for. And so when I was interviewing many people in Memphis for this story, including a bunch of former prosecutors who worked with Amy Weirich and for her, that was something that really jumped out in terms of the organizational culture and, and the kinds of values that leadership um, should or or should try to instill. One final point, Emily, which I'm interested in your thoughts on, which is one thing I think that's implicit in the story, and I know you and I have talked about this because this is a theme of your work generally, is that what it suggests is actually that legal reform, criminal justice reform in this country is really prosecutorial reform. That so much of what is screwy and difficult about the American criminal justice system is not does not lie with judges. It doesn't lie with defense attorneys, doesn't really lie with defendants or even the cops. It's that what prosecutors do, the amount of discretion they have, the, the kind of power they have is enormous. And, and, that, and that so if you're a lawyer who wants to make a change in the world, like maybe that's where you, maybe you what you the way you do it is by becoming a prosecutor, not by becoming a defense attorney. And Emily, a couple of times you've used the phrase elected D.A. And I wonder if yeah. you think that plays into the situation in which the office found itself as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, David, you're totally right, or at least I agree with you. I mean, prosecutors have enormous power, I would argue, more than the system was designed for. Um, I would also turn this a little bit to say that that also means prosecutors have amazing power to make change. And I do think that um, people who want to change the system should think about um, going into district attorney's offices or running for office because... Ruth, you're also right, in almost every state, DAs are elected. And in the last really just like year or so, we have started to see a shift in a number of big cities where candidates for district attorney are running on promises to make things more fair, as opposed to the sort of usual law and order, throw the book at criminals playbook that we're used to. And it's just going to be really interesting. It already is really interesting to see these kinds of DAs take over in cities like Chicago and Houston and Corpus Christi and Kansas City, Kansas, like unexpected places and see what kind of change they're going to make. Um, I should add, though, that in Memphis, Amy Weirich was elected to an eight-year term. And so she is not up for re-election until 2022. Read Emily story in the New York Times Magazine this Sunday about Nora Thanks, Jackson. guys. That was super nice of you. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're having a martini at the Marcus household, Ruth, what will you be chattering about? You're, I know you're just tempting me to restate that it. it's the Marcus Leibowitz household. Um, so I, my cocktail chatter um, is something that we actually really did um, chatter about over cocktails at the Marcus Leibowitz household. In one of those the, cocktail Washington insider cocktail parties it, that you're it was notorious a, for going to? It was a lovely small dinner, um, but it was some Washington insiders, if truth be told. Um, but we were talking about a very non-Washington thing, um, quite celestial, which is I'm chattering about the coming on August 21st to a zone of totality near you, the solar eclipse. I'm ge- I'm not like a science geek, but I'm getting really excited about this. I ordered my eclipse glasses the other day because <laughs> as a as a Jewish mom, I have to say this is a literal you could put your eye out that way moment. Do not <laughs> do not look at the sun um, without during the eclipse um, without your special glasses on. Um, it turns out actually during the totality phase, it's safe, but any other time you could go blind. Um, So this is the first time in 99 years since 1918 that we're going to have a total eclipse that passes the whole swath of the United States. It's just you read these descriptions of what happens during a total eclipse, and it's just magnificently biblical. The sun goes dark. The birds start to chirp their nighttime songs. I don't know what happens with the livestock, um, but the 
the winds start to ripple in this kind of biblical way um, because, so, you know, it's science. Something happens with the moon and it draws in the the winds. And it's just, I'm really um, looking forward to this moment, though it's going to be the event um, of starting the eclipse and then ending it lasts about an hour and a half. But the actual moment, I think, is just a few minutes. But we're going to all be chattering away or not chattering in total silence in the awe of um, the celestial beings and moment. I, I share, I align myself with your, with your views for change. Emily, <laughs> what's your chatter? In the next couple of weeks, if I understand this correctly, the Trump administration is going to decide whether to continue paying the cost reduction subsidies that keep the Obamacare exchanges alive. And meanwhile, of course, we have this lawsuit going on in federal court that the House Republicans brought, um, arguing that only Congress has the power to appropriate these funds. This was a lawsuit brought when President Obama was the president and the House Republicans could safely kind of rail against him. Now we have a question about whether the Trump administration wants to defend this lawsuit at all. And so as we watch all of this unfold, I'm really interested in the latest development, which is that a bunch of Democratic attorneys, state attorneys general around the country, um, I think led by the AG in California and Eric Schneiderman, the AG in New York, they have gone together and asked to intervene in this lawsuit. And the latest ruling was the court said, yes, you can intervene, which suggests that Someone is going to defend these cost reduction subsidies in court, even if it's not the Trump administration. So there are kind of two things to watch. There's the Trump folks and whether Trump really does plan to push the exchanges to the brinking point and make them implode as he keeps warning. And what's going to happen to this lawsuit, which is like another form of attack on the same subsidies. My chatter is about something which is unavailable yet, but will be available in October Ron Chernow, the author of the biography of Hamilton, from which the musical Hamilton was derived, and also author of uh, biography of John D. Rockefeller, really one of the great popular historians of our time, has a biography of the greatest American coming in October, and that's Ulysses S. Grant, the greatest American of them all. And I'm reading it because I'm going to be writing a review for Slate of it, but it is a fantastic, enormous book about the most American hero of them all, a man who is grotesquely unappreciated, you know, is a really kind of an incredible figure. He's, his life is, to me, the, the greatest of all American lives. Um, I can only hope that it leads to a musical. Maybe Old Crow Medicine Show will write the, write the songs along with Maren Morris and, and uh, Kyle Chandler could star from Friday Night Lights could star as General Grant. But I recommend this book, uh, having only read 100 pages of the 987 pages it is. It's going to be great. And so check that out. And before we go, can I suggest that you check out Slate's Represent? Every week, very smart and very creative people join Aisha Harris, who's a Slate culture writer, to discuss the latest film, TV shows, and happenings in Hollywood. Aisha's just whip smart, super fun, really interesting. And uh, she has great conversations. So you should download and subscribe to Slate Represent on your podcatcher of choice for thoughtful conversations on race, gender, sexuality, and more. So Jamel has been on it. Turner Classic Movies host Tiffany Vasquez, Barry Jenkins, the Oscar-winning director, Rita Moreno was on it, Master of None co-creator Alan Yang was on it. So listen to Represent. That's the GabFest for today. Our show is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our intern, not our intern, our researcher is Kevin Townsend. Again, if you would like to succeed Kevin as our researcher, email us at gabfest at slate.com with a resume and cover letter. And happy birthday, Kevin, since David and never managed birthday, to Kevin. say that before. I did say it. I said it. I actually said it, Emily. <laughs> I said it when I was talking I about it. I thought you said that it would be th- uh, Kevin's most cherished birthday present if someone would apply to take over Yeah, because I mentioned that it was his uh, birthday. Yeah, but I don't think you actually said, hey, Kevin, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Kevin. Man. <laughs> the queen gets less attention for her birthday than Kevin's getting for this birthday. Good Lord. I'm not going to wish you a happy birthday, Kevin. <laughs> You've had enough happy birthday. Take a stand. That's a really you can important have a mediocre birthday. Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, you should uh, follow us on Twitter at at Slate Gabfest. That's one of the things that Kevin does is man our Twitter feed and does a great job with it. It's very lively and interesting. It, it has lots of stuff about what we talked about. It has links to many of the things we talked about and links out. So follow us at Slate Gabfest for Emily Bazelon and the always wonderful Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.